CD6 In the wings, the noise of the audience was a solid wall of sound. There's lots of them, said Glod. I never played for that many in my entire life. Ashfelt was arranging Cliff's rocks on the stage and getting massive applause and catcalls. Glod glanced up at Buddy. He hadn't let go of the guitar all this time. Dwarfs weren't given to deep introspection, but Glod was suddenly aware of a desire to be a long way from here, in a cave somewhere. Best of luck, you guys said a flat little voice behind them. Jimbo was bandaging Crash's arm. Eh, thanks, said Cliff. What happened to you? They threw something at us, said Crash. What? Noddy, I think. What could be seen of Crash's face broke into a huge and terrible smile. We done it, though, he said. We done music with Roxin, all right. That bit where Jimbo smashed his guitar, they loved that bit. Smashed his guitar? Yeah, said Jimbo with the pride of the artist. On scum. Buddy had his eyes closed. Cliff thought he could see a very, very faint glow surrounding him like a thin mist. There were tiny points of light in it. Sometimes Buddy looked very elvish. Ashfelt scurried off the stage. OK, all done, he said. The others looked at Buddy. He was still standing with his eyes shut as if he was asleep on his feet. We'll get on out there then, said Glod. Yeah? said Cliff. We'll get on out there, will we? Eh, uh, Buddy? Buddy's eyes snapped open suddenly. Let's rock, he whispered. Cliff had thought that the sound was loud before, but it hit him like a club as they trooped out of the wings. Glod picked up his horn. Cliff sat down and found his hammers. Buddy walked to the centre of the stage, and to Cliff's amazement just stood there looking down at his feet. The cheering began to subside, and then died away altogether. The huge hall was filled with the hush of hundreds of people holding their breath. Buddy's fingers moved. He picked out three simple little chords, and then he looked up. Hello, Ank Mopok! Cliff felt the music rise up behind him and rush him forward into a tunnel of fire and sparks and excitement. He brought his hammers down, and it was music with Roxin. C.M.O.T. Dibbler stood out in the street so that he didn't have to hear the music. He was smoking a cigar and doing calculations on the back of an overdue bill for stale buns. Let's see. <laughs> OK, habit outside somewhere so there's no rent. Maybe 10,000 people, one sausage and a bun each at $1.50. Nah, say $1.75. Mustard, ten pence extra. 10,000 band with rocks in shirts at $5 each. Make that $10.00. Add stall rental for other traders, because people who like music with rocks in could probably be persuaded to buy anything. He was aware of a horse coming along the street. He paid it no attention until a female voice said, How do I get in here? No chance. Tickets all sold out, said Dibbler, without turning his head. Even banned with rocks in posters, people had been offering three dollars just for posters, and Chalky the Troll could knock out a hundred at... He looked up. The horse, a magnificent white one, watched him incuriously. Dibbler looked around. Where'd she go? There were a couple of trolls lounging just inside the entrance. Susan ignored them. They ignored her. In the audience, Ponder Stibbons looked both ways and cautiously opened a wooden box. The stretched string inside began to vibrate. This is all wrong, he shouted in Ridcolor's ear. This is not according to the laws of sound. Maybe they're not laws, screamed Ridcully. People a foot away couldn't hear him. Maybe they're just guidelines. No, they have to be laws. Ridcully saw the dean try to climb on the stage in the excitement. Ashfelt's huge troll feet landed heavily on his fingers. Oh, I say, good shot, said the Arch-Chancellor. A prickling sensation on the back of his neck made him look around. Although the cavern was crowded, a space seemed to have formed in the floor. People were pressed together, but somehow this circle was inviolate as a wall. In the middle of it was the girl he'd seen in the drum. She was walking across the floor, holding her dress daintily. Ridcully's eyes watered. He stepped forward, concentrating. You could do almost anything if you concentrated. Anyone could have stepped into the circle if their senses had been prepared to let them know it was there. Inside the circle, the sound was slightly muted. He tapped her on the shoulder. She spun round, startled. Good evening, said Ridcully. He looked her up and down and then said, I'm Mustram Ridcully, Arch-Chancellor of Unseen University. 
I, I can't help wondering who you are. Um, the girl looked panicky for a moment. Well, technically, I suppose I'm death. Uh, technically? Yes, but um, not on duty at the moment. Oh, very glad to hear that. There was a shriek from the stage as Ashfelt threw the lecturer in recent rooms into the audience, which applauded. Can't say I've seen that much of, of, of death, said Ridcully, but in so far as I have, he, he's tended to be, well, well, he, to start with, and, and, and a good deal thinner. He's my grandfather. Ah, 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 really? Ah, I, I didn't even know he was, uh, Ridcully stopped. Well, 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 uh, fancy that. Your grandfather, and, and you're in the family firm? Shut up, you stupid man, said Susan. Don't you dare patronise me. You see him? She pointed to the stage where Buddy was in mid-riff. He's going to die soon because of silliness, and if you can't do anything about it, go away. Ridcully glanced at the stage. When he looked back, Susan had vanished. He made a mighty effort and thought he caught a glimpse of her a little way off, but she knew he was looking for her, and he had no chance of finding her now. Ashfelt got back into the dressing-room first. There is something very sad about an empty dressing-room. It's like a discarded pair of underpants, which it resembles in a number of respects. It's seen a lot of activity. It may even have witnessed excitement and a whole gamut of human passions. And now there's nothing much left but a faint smell. The little troll dumped the bag of rocks on the floor and bit the top off a couple of beer bottles. Cliff entered. He got halfway across the floor and then fell over, hitting the boards with every part of his body at once. Glod stepped over him and flopped onto a barrel. He looked at the beer bottles. He took off his helmet. He poured the beer into the helmet, then he let his head flop forward. Buddy entered and sat down in the corner, leaning against the wall, and Dibbler followed. Well, what can I say? What can I say? he said. Don't ask us, said Cliff from his prone position. How should we know? That was magnificent, said Dibbler. What's up with the dwarf? Is he drowning? Glod reached out an arm without looking, smashed the top of another bottle of beer and poured it over his head. Mr. Dibbler, said Cliff. Yes? I think we want to talk. Uh, just us, like the band, if you don't mind. Dibbler looked from one to the other. Buddy was staring at the wall. Glod was making bubbling noises. Cliff was still on the floor. Okay, he said, and then added brightly, Buddy, the free performance? Great idea. I'll start organising it right away, and you can do it just as soon as you get back from your tour. <laughs> right. Well, I'll just... He turned to leave and walked into Cliff's arm, which was suddenly blocking the doorway. Tour? What tour? Dibbler backed off a little. Ah, oh, a uh, uh, few places, uh, Quirm, Shudopolis, Stolat. He looked around at them. Didn't you want that? We'll talk about that later, said Cliff. He pushed Dibbler out of the door and slammed it shut. Beer dripped off Glod's beard. Tour, three more nights of this. What's the problem, said Ashfelt. It was great. Everyone was cheering. You did two hours. I had to keep picking him off the stage. I never felt so... He stopped. That's it, really, said Cliff. The thing is, I go on that stage, I sit down not knowing even what we're going to do. Next minute's Buddy's playing something on his... on that thing. Next I'm going, ba-bam, bam, boom, cha ba bum I don't know what I'm playing. It just comes in my head and down my arms. Yes, said Glod. Me too. Seems to me I'm getting stuff out of that horn I never put in there. And it ain't like proper playing, said Cliff. That's what I'm saying. It's more like being played. You've been in show business a long time, right? said Glod to Ashfelt. Yep, been there, done it, seen them all. You ever seen an audience like that? I've seen them throw flowers and cheer at the opera house. Hmm, <laughs> just flowers. Some woman threw her clothing at the stage. That's right, it landed on my head. And when Miss Vavavoom did the feather dance down at the skunk club in Brewer Street, the whole audience rushed the stage when she was down to the last feather. That was like this, was it? No, the troll admitted. 
I've got to say, I ain't never seen an audience so hungry, not even for Miss Varvarvoom, and they were pretty damn peckish then, I can tell you. Of course, no one threw underwear onto the stage. She used to throw it off the stage. There's something else, said Cliff. There's four people in this room, and only three of them's talking. Buddy looked up. The music's important, he mumbled. It ain't music, said Glod. Music don't do this to people. It don't make them feel like they've been put through a ringer. I was sweating so much I'm going to have to change my vest any day now. He rubbed his nose. Also, I looked at the audience and I thought, they paid money to get in here. I bet it came to more than ten dollars. Ashfelt held up a slip of paper. Found this ticket on the floor, he said. Glod read it. A dollar fifty? He said, six hundred people at a dollar fifty each? That's, that's uh, four hundred dollars. Nine hundred, said Buddy, in the same flat tone. But the money isn't important. The money's not important. You keep on saying that. What kind of a musician are you? There was still a muted roar from outside. You want to go back playing for half a dozen people in some cellar somewhere after this? said Buddy. Who's the most famous horn player there ever was, Glod? Brother Charnel, said the dwarf promptly. Everyone knows that. He stole the altar gold from the temple of Ofla and had it made into a horn and played magical music until the gods caught up with him and pulled his... Right, said Buddy, but if you went out there now and asked who the most famous horn player is, would they remember some felonious monk? Or would they shout for Glod Glodson? They... Glod hesitated. Right, said Buddy. Think about that. A musician has to be heard. You can't stop now. We can't stop now. Glod waved a finger at the guitar. It's that thing, he said. It's too dangerous. I can handle it. Yes, but where's it going to end? It's not how you finish that matters, said Buddy. It's how you get there. That sounds elvish to me. The door burst open again. Uh, said Dibbler. Boys, uh, if you don't come back and play something else, um, then uh, we're in the deep brown. Can't play, said Glod. I've run out of breath through lack of money. I said ten dollars, didn't I? said Dibbler. Each, said Cliff. Dibbler, who hadn't expected to get away with less than a hundred, waved his hands in the air. Gratitude, is it? You want me to cut me own throat? We'll help if you like, said Cliff. All right, all right, all right. Thirty dollars, said Dibbler, and I'll go without me tea. Cliff looked at Glod, who was still digesting the thing about the most famous horn player in the world. There's lots of dwarfs and trolls in the audience, said Cliff. Cavern deep, mountain high, said Glod. No, said Buddy. What then? I'll think of something. The audience spilled out into the street. The wizards gathered around the dean, snapping their fingers. Wella, 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 sang the dean happily. It's gone midnight, said the lecturer in recent runes, snapping his fingers, and I don't care a bit. <laughs> what shall we do now? We could have a rumble, said the dean. That's true, said the chair of indefinite studies. We did miss dinner. We missed dinner, said the senior wrangler. Wow, that's music with rocks in. We just don't care. No, I meant, the dean paused. He wasn't quite sure, now he came to really think about it, what he had meant. It's a long walk back to the university, he conceded. I suppose we could at least stop for a coffee or something. Maybe a donut or two, said recent runes. And perhaps some cake, said the chair. I could just fancy some apple pie, said the senior wrangler. And some cake. Coffee, said the dean. Yes, a coffee bar. <laughs> That's right. What's a coffee bar, said the senior wrangler. Like a, like a chocolate bar, said recent runes. The missed dinner, hitherto forgotten, was beginning to loom large in everyone's stomachs. The dean looked down at his shiny new leather robe. Everyone had said how good it was. They'd admired Born to Rune. His hair was right, too. 
He was thinking of shaving off his beard, but just leaving the side bits because that felt right. And coffee. Yes, coffee was in there somewhere. Coffee was all part of it. And there was the music. That was in there. That was everywhere. But there was something else, too, something missing. He wasn't sure what it was, only that he'd know it if he ever saw it. It was very dark in the alley behind the cavern, and only the keenest sighted would have seen several figures pressed against the wall. The occasional glint of a tarnished sequin would indicate to those who knew about such things that these were the Musician's Guild crack enforcers, the Grisham Ford Close Harmony Singers. Unlike most of the people employed by Mr. Cleet, they did, in fact, genuinely have some musical talent. They'd also been in to see the band. Do-wop, boo-wop, do-wop, boo-wop, said the thin one. Bo-bo-bo-bo-bo-bo-bo-bo-bo-bo-bo-bo-bo-bo-bo-bo-bo-bo-bo-bo-bo-bo-bo-bo-bo-bo-bo-bo-bo-bo-bo-bo-bo-
but everyone else had seemed to know what was meant. And then there had been, as far as he could remember, a song about not stepping on someone's shoes. Fair enough, sensible suggestion. No one wanted their feet trodden on. But why a song asking people to avoid doing so should have such an effect, Rid Cully was at a loss to understand. And as for the girl... Ponder bustled up, clutching his box. I've got nearly all of it, Arch-Chancellor, he shouted. Ridcully glanced past him. There was Dibbler, still bearing a tray of unsold band with Roxin shirts. Um, yes, uh, fine, Mr. Stibbons. Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, he said. Jolly good. Um, let's get back home. Good evening, Arch-Chancellor, said Dibbler. Oh, why, hello, throat, said Ridcully. Didn't see you there. What's in that box? Oh, oh, nothing, nothing at all. It's amazing, said Ponder, full of the undirected excitement of the true discoverer and idiot. We can trap the... Uh, oh, ah, ow! Uh, my word, uh, clumsy old me, said Ridcully, as the young wizard clutched at his leg. Here, l let me take that totally innocent device you have there. But the box had tumbled out of Ponder's arms. It hit the street before Ridcully could catch it, and the lid flew off. The music spilled out into the night. How did you do that? said Dibbler. Is it magic? The music lets itself be trapped so you can hear it again and again, said Ponder, and I think you did that on purpose, sir. You can hear it again and again, said Dibbler. What, by just opening a box? Yes, said Ponder. No, said Ridcully. Yes, you can, said Ponder. I showed you, Arch-Chancellor, don't you remember? No, said Ridcully. Any kind of box, said Dibbler, in a voice choked with money. Oh, yes, but you have to stretch a wire inside so the music has somewhere to live and... Ow! Ouch! Ow! <laughs> Can't think what's come over me with these sudden uh, muscular spasms, said Ridcully. Come, Mr. Stibbons, let us not waste any more of Mr. Dibbler's valuable time. Oh, you're not wasting it, said Dibbler. Boxes full of music, eh? We'll take this one, said Ridcully, snatching it up. It's an important um, magical experiment. He frog-marched Ponder away, which was a little hard because the youth was bent double and wheezing. What did you have to go and do that for? Mr. Stibbons, I know you to be a man who seeks to understand the, the, the universe. Here's an important rule. Never give a monkey the key to the banana plantation. Sometimes you can just see an accident waiting to... Oh, no. He let Ponder go and waved vaguely up the street. Got any theories about that, young man? Something golden brown and viscous was oozing out onto the street from what was just possibly, behind the mounds of the stuff, a shop. As the two wizards watched, there was a tinkle of glass and the brown substance began to emerge from the second floor. Ridcully stamped forward and scooped up a handful, leaping back before the wall could reach him. He sniffed at it. Is it some ghastly emanation from the dungeon dimensions? said Ponder. Shouldn't think so. Smells like coffee, said Ridcully. Coffee? Coffee-flavoured froth, anyway. Now, why is it I have this feeling that there's going to be wizards in there somewhere? A figure lurched out of the foam, dripping brown bubbles. Who goes there? said Ridcully. Ah, yes. Did anyone get the number of that ox cart? Another donut, if you'd be so good, said the figure brightly, and fell over into the froth. That sounded like the bursar to me, said Ridcully. Come along, lad. It's only bubbles. He strode into the foam. After a moment's hesitation, Ponder realised that the honour of young wizardry was at stake, and pushed his way in behind him. Almost immediately, he bumped into someone in the fog of bubbles. Uh, hello. Who's that? It's me, Stibbons. I've come to rescue you. Good. Um, which way is out? Uh. There were some explosions somewhere in the coffee cloud, and a popping noise. Ponder blinked. The level of bubbles was sinking. Various pointy hats appeared like drowned logs in a drying lake. Ridcully waded over, coffee froth dripping from his hat. Something bloody stupid's been going on here, he said, and I'm going to wait quite patiently until the dean owns up. I don't see why you should assume it was me, muttered a coffee-coloured column. Well, who was it then? 
The dean said the coffee ought to be frothy, said a mound of foam of a senior wranglish persuasion, and he did some simple magic, and I rather think we got carried away. Ah, so it was you, dean. Yes, all right, but only by coincidence, said the dean testily. Out of here, all of you, said Ridcully. Back to the university this minute. I mean, I don't see why you should assume it's my fault, just because sometimes it might happen to be me who... The froth had sunk a bit more to reveal a pair of eyes under a dwarfish helmet. Excuse me, said a voice still under the bubbles, but who's going to pay for all this? That's four dollars, thank you very much. The bursar's got the money, said Red Cully quickly. Not any more, said the senior wrangler. He bought seventeen doughnuts. Sugar, said Red Cully. You let him eat sugar? You know that makes him, you know, a bit funny. Mrs. Whitlow said she'd give notice if we let him get anywhere near sugar again. He herded the damp wizards towards the door. All right, my good man, you can trust us. We're wizards. I shall have some money sent round in the morning. Eh, you expect me to believe that, do you? said the dwarf. It had been a long night. Ridcully turned and waved his hand at the wall. There was a crackle of octarine fire, and the words, I owe you four dollars, burned themselves into the stone. Oh, right you are, then. No problem there, said the dwarf, ducking back into the froth. I shouldn't think uh, Mrs. Whitlow is going to worry, said the lecturer in recent runes as they squelched through the night. I saw her and some of the maids at the, at the um, concert. You know, the, the kitchen girls, Molly, Polly and um, uh, Dolly. They were, uh, they were screaming. I didn't think the music was that bad, said Ridcully. No, um, not in pain. Um, <clears throat> I wouldn't say that, said the lecturer in recent runes, beginning to go red. But um, when the young man was waggling his, his hips like that... He definitely looks, looks elvish to me, said Ridcully. Uh, I, I think she, she threw some of her um, under-things on to the stage. This silenced even Ridcully, at least for a while. Every wizard was suddenly busy with his own private thoughts. What? Mrs. Whitlow? The chair of indefinite studies began. Yes. Uh, what? Her? I, I, uh, I think so. Ridcully had once seen Mrs. Whitlow's washing line. He'd been impressed. He'd never believed there was so much pink elastic in the world. What? Really? Her? Uh, said the dean, his voice sounding as though it was coming from a long way away. I'm uh, pretty sure. Sounds dangerous to me, said Ridcully briskly. Could do someone a serious injury. Now then, you lot, back to the university, right now for cold baths all round. Really? Her, um, uh, said the chair of indefinite studies. Somehow none of them felt able to leave the idea alone. Make yourself useful and find the bursar snapped Ridcully, and I'd have you lot up in front of the university authorities first thing in the morning if it wasn't for the fact that you are the university authorities. Foul old Ron, professional maniac and one of Ankh Morpork's most industrious beggars, blinked in the gloom. Lord Vetinari had excellent night vision, and unfortunately a well-developed sense of smell. And then what happened, he said trying to keep his face turned away from the beggar. Because the fact was that although in actual size foul old Ron was a small hunched man in a huge grubby overcoat, in smell he filled the world. In fact, foul old Ron was a physical schizophrenic. There was foul old Ron, and there was the smell of foul old Ron, which had obviously developed over the years to such an extent that it had a distinct personality. Anyone could have a smell that lingered long after they'd gone somewhere else, but the smell of foul old Ron could actually arrive somewhere several minutes before he did, in order to spread out and get comfortable before he arrived. It had evolved into something so striking that it was no longer perceived with the nose, which shut down instantly in self-defence. People could tell that foul old Ron was approaching by the way their earwax started to melt. <laughs> Uh, buggery, uh, buggery, uh, wrong side out, oh, I told him, oh, I told him, bugger him. The patrician waited. With foul old Ron, you had to allow time for his wandering mind to get into the same vicinity as his tongue. 
<laughs> spying on me with magic. No, no, no. I told him, bean soup, see here. And then everyone was dancing, you see. <laughs> and then afterwards there were two of the wizards in the, in the street. And one of them was going on about catching the music in a box. And then and Mr. Dibbler was interested. And then the coffee house exploded. And they all went back to the university, bugger it. <laughs> Buggerum, buggery, <laughs> see if I don't. The uh, coffee house exploded, did it? Frothy, frothy coffee all over the place, Your Honour. <laughs> buggery. Yes, yes, and so on, said the patrician, waving a thin hand. And that's all you can tell me? Well, well, buggery, buggery. Foul old Ron caught the patrician's eye and got a grip on himself. Even in his own highly individualised sanity, he could tell when not to punish his threadbare luck. His smell wandered around the room, reading documents and examining the pictures. They say, he said, that he drives all the, the, the women mad. He leaned forward. The patrician leaned back. They say, after he moved his hips like that, Mrs. Whitlow threw her what's-names uh, onto the stage. The patrician raised an eyebrow. Was-names? You know. Foul old Ron moved his hands vaguely in the air. A pair of pillowcases? Mm -mm. Two sacks of flour? Some very baggy trousers? Oh! Oh, I see. My word! Were there any casualties? Dunno, Your Honor. But there's something I do know. Yes? Oh, Cumbling Michael says, Your Honor, sometimes <laughs> pays for information. Yes, I know. I can't imagine how these rumours get about, said the patrician, getting up and opening a window. I shall have to have something done about it. Once again, foul old Ron reminded himself that while he was probably insane, he definitely wasn't as mad as all that. Only I've got this, Your Honour, he said, pulling something out of the horrible recesses of his clothing. It says writing on it, Your Honour. It was a poster in glowing primary colours. It couldn't have been very old, but an hour or two as foul old Ron's chest warmer had aged it considerably. The patrician unfolded it with a pair of tweezers. Them's the pictures of the music players, said foul old Ron, helpfully. And, and that's... That's writing. <laughs> and then there's more writing. There, look. Mr. Dibbler had, had Chalky the Troll run him off just now. <laughs> but I nipped in after <laughs> and threatened to breathe on everyone lesson they give me one. I'm sure that worked famously, said the patrician. He lit a candle and read the poster carefully. In the presence of foul old Ron, all candles burned with a blue edge to the flame. Free festival of music with rocks in it, he said. That's, that's where you don't have to pay to go in, said foul old Ron helpfully. <laughs> Bugger him. <laughs> Buggery. Lord Vetinari read on. In Hyde Park next Wednesday. Well, well. A public open space, of course. I wonder if there'll be many people there. Lots, Your Honour. There, there was hundreds couldn't get into the, to, 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 to the cavern. And the band looks like that, do they? Said Lord Vetinari, scowling like that. Sweating most of the time I saw them, uh, said Foul Old Run. Be there or be a wrecked. Tangular thing, said the patrician. This is some sort of occult code, 
Do you think? <laughs> Couldn't say, Your Honour, <laughs> said Fowl Run. My, my, my brain, it, it, it goes uh, all slow when, when I'm thirsty. They are totally unable to be seen, and a longy way out, said Lord Vetinari solemnly. He looked up. Oh, I am sorry, he said. I'm sure I can find someone to give you a cool, refreshing drink. Foul old Ron coughed. It had sounded like a perfectly sincere offer, but somehow he was suddenly not at all thirsty. Don't let me keep you, then. Thank you so very much, said Lord Vetinari. Uh, yes? Uh, nothing. Very good. When Ron had buggerit, buggerit, buggerumed down the stairs, the patrician tapped his pen thoughtfully on the paper and stared at the wall. The pen kept bouncing on the word free. Finally, he rang a small bell. A young clerk put his head round the door. Ah, drumnot, said Lord Vetinari. Just go and tell the head of the musicians' guild he wants a word with me, will you? Uh, Mr. Cleet is already in the waiting room, your lordship said the clerk. Ah, does he by any chance have some kind of poster with him? Yes, your lordship. And is he very angry? Uh, this is very much the case, your lordship. It's about some festival. He insists you have it stopped. Dear me. And he demands that you see him instantly. Ah, then leave him for, say, twenty minutes, then show him up. Yes, your lordship. He keeps saying that he wants to know what you are doing about it. Good. Good. Then I can ask him the same question. The patrician sat back. See si non confectus, non reficiat. That was the motto of the veterinaries. Everything worked if you just let it happen. He picked up a stack of sheet music and began to listen to Salami's Prelude to a Nocturne on a theme by Bubbler. After a while, he looked up. Don't hesitate to leave, he snapped. The smell slunk away. Squeak! Don't be stupid. All I did was frighten them off. It's not as though I hurt them. What's the good of having the power if you can't use it? The death of rats put his nose in his paws. It was a lot easier with rats. Rats had featured largely in the history of Ankh Morpork. Shortly before the patrician came to power, there was a terrible plague of rats. The city council counted it by offering twenty pence for every rat tail. This did, for a week or two, reduce the number of rats, and then people were suddenly queuing up with tails. The city treasury was being drained, and no one seemed to be doing much work. And there still seemed to be a lot of rats around. Lord Vetinari had listened carefully while the problem was explained and had solved the thing with one memorable phrase which said a lot about him, about the folly of bounty offers and about the natural instinct of Ankh-Morporkians in any situation involving money. Tax the rat farms. C.M.O.T. Dibbler often did without sleep too. He generally had to meet Chalky at night. Chalky was a large troll but tended to dry up and flake in daylight. Other trolls looked down on him because he came from a sedimentary family and was therefore a very low-class troll indeed. He didn't mind. He was a very amiable character. He did odd jobs for people who needed something unusual in a hurry and without entanglements and who had clinking money. And this job was pretty odd. Huh? Just boxes, he said. With lids, said Dibbler, like this one I've made, and a bit of wire stretched inside. Some people would have said why or what for, but Chalky didn't make his money like that. He picked up the box and turned it this way and that. How many? he said. Just ten to start with, said Dibbler, but I think there'll be more later. Lots and lots more. How many is ten? said the troll. Dibbler held up both hands, fingers extended. Mm, I'll do them for two dollars, said Chalky. You want me to cut me own throat? Two dollars. Dollar each for these and a dollar fifty for the next batch. Two dollars. All right, all right. Two dollars each. That's ten dollars the lot, right? Right. 
and that is cutting my own throat. Chalky tossed the box aside. It bounced on the floor and the lid came off. Sometime later, a small greyish-brown mongrel dog, on the prowl for anything edible, limped into the workshop and sat peering into the box for a while. Then it felt a bit of an idiot and wandered off. Ridcully hammered on the door of the high-energy magic building as the city clocks were striking two. He was supporting Ponder Stibbons, who was asleep on his feet. Ridcully was not a quick thinker, but he always got there eventually. The door opened and Skaz's hair appeared. "'Are you facing me?' said Ridcully. "'Yes, Arch-Chancellor. "'Let us in, then, the dew's soaking through me boots.' "'Ridcully looked around as he helped Ponder in. "'Wish I knew what it was that keeps you lads working all hours,' he said. "'I never found magic that interesting when I was a lad. "'Go and fetch some coffee for Mr. Stibbons here, will you? "'And then get your friends.' "'Skaz bustled off, and Ridcully was left alone.' "'except for the slumbering ponder. "'What is it they do?' he said. "'He never really tried to find out. "'Skaz had been working at a long bench by one wall. "'At least he recognised the little wooden disc. "'There were small oblong stones ranged on it in a couple of concentric circles, "'and a candle lantern positioned on a swivelling arm "'so that it could be moved anywhere around the circumference. "'It was a travelling computer for druids, "'a sort of portable stone circle.' something they called a knee-top. The bursar had sent off for one once. It had said, For the priest in a hurry, on the box. He'd never been able to make it work properly, and now it was used as a doorstop. Ridcully couldn't see what they had to do with magic. After all, it wasn't much more than a calendar, and you could get a perfectly good calendar for 8p. Rather more puzzling was the huge array of glass tubes behind it. That was where Skaz had been working, there was a litter of bent glassware and jars and bits of cardboard where the student had been sitting. The tubing seemed to be alive. Ridcully leaned forward. It was full of ants. They scuttled along the tubing and threw complex little spirals in their thousands. In the silence of the room, their bodies made a faint, continuous rustling. There was a slot level with the Arch-Chancellor's eyes. The word... In was written on a piece of paper that had been pasted onto the glass, and on the bench was an oblong of card which looked just the right shape to go into the slot. It had round holes punched in it. There were two round holes, then a whole pattern of round holes, and then a further two holes. On it, in pencil, someone had scribbled two times two. Ridcully was the kind of man who'd push any lever just to see what it did. He put the card in the obvious slot. There was an immediate change in the rustling. Ants trailed in their busy way through the tubing. Some of them appeared to be carrying seeds. There was a small dull sound and a card dropped out of the other end of the glass maze. It had four holes in it. Ridcully was still staring at it when Ponder came up behind him, rubbing his eyes. It's our ant counter, he said. Two plus two equals four, said Ridcully. Well, well, I never knew that. It can do other sums as well. Are you telling me ants can count? Oh, no, not individual ants. It's a bit hard to explain. The holes in the cards, you see, block up some tubes and let them through others, and, Ponder sighed, we think it might be able to do other things. Like what? Ridcully demanded. Yeah, well, that's what we're trying to find out. You're trying to find out? Who built it? Skaz. And now you're trying to find out what it does. Well, we think it might be able to do quite complicated mass if we can get enough bugs in it. Ants were still bustling around the enormous crystalline structure. Mmm, had a, had a rat thingy or a gerbil or something when I was a lad, said Ridcully, giving up in the face of the incomprehensible. Spent all the time on a treadmill, round and round, all night long. This is a bit like that, yes? In in very broad terms, said Ponder carefully. Had an ant farm, too, said Ridcully, thinking faraway thoughts. The little devils never could plough straight. He pulled himself together. Anyway, get the rest of your chums here, right now. What for? A bit of a, of a tutorial, said Ridcully. Aren't we going to examine the music? In good time, said Ridcully, but first we're going to talk to someone. Who? I'm not sure, said Ridcully. We'll know when he turns up. Or her. 
Glod looked at their suite. The hotel owners had just left. After going through the, this is the window, it really opens, this is the pump, you get water out of it, with the handle, here, this is me, waiting for some money, routine. Well, that just about does it. That just about puts the iron helmet on it, that does, he said. We play music with Roxin all evening, and we've got a room that looks like this. It's homely, said Cliff. Look, trolls don't have much to do with the frills of life. Glod looked towards his feet. It's on the floor, and it's soft, he said. Silly me for thinking it was a carpet. Someone fetch me a broom. Now someone fetch me a shovel, then someone fetch me a broom. It'll do, said Buddy. He put down his guitar and stretched out on the wooden slab that was apparently one of the beds. Cliff, said Glod, can I have a word? He jerked a stubby thumb at the door. They conferred on the landing. It's getting bad, said Glod. Yep. He hardly says a word now when he's not on stage. Yep. Ever met a zombie? I knew a golem, Mr. Dorfel down in Long Hogmeat. Him? He's a genuine zombie? Yep. Got a holy word on his head, I seen it. Yuck, really? I buy sausages from him. Anyway, what about zombies? You couldn't tell from the taste. I thought he was really a good sausage maker. What were you saying about zombies? Funny how you can know someone for years and then find out they've got feet of clay. Zombies, said Cliff patiently. What? Oh, yes. I mean, he acts like one. Glod recalled some of the zombies in Ankh Morpork, at least like zombies are supposed to act. Yeah, I know what you mean. And we both know why. Yeah. Uh, uh, why? The guitar. Oh, that, yeah. When we're on stage, that thing is in charge. In the silence of the room, the guitar lay in the dark by Buddy's bed, and its strings vibrated gently to the sound of the dwarf's voice. Okay, so what do we do about it? said Cliff. It's made of wood. Ten seconds with an axe, no more problem. I'm not sure. That ain't no ordinary instrument. He was a nice kid when we met him. For a human, said Glod. So what do we do? I don't think we could get it off him. Maybe we could get him to... The dwarf paused. He was aware of a fuzzy echo to his voice. That damned thing is listening to us, he hissed. Let's go outside. They ended up out in the road. Can't see how it can listen, said Cliff. An instrument's for listening too. The strings listen, said Glod flatly. This is not an ordinary instrument. Cliff shrugged. There's one way we could find out he said. Early morning fog filled the streets. Around the university, it was sculpted into curious forms by the slight magical background radiation. Strange-shaped things moved across the damp cobbles. Two of them were Glod and Cliff. Right, said the dwarf, here we are. He looked up at a blank wall. I knew it, he said. Didn't I say magic? How many times have we heard this story? There's a mysterious shop no one's ever seen before, and someone goes in and buys some rusty old curio, and it turns out... Glod, some kind of talisman or a bottle full of genie, and then when there's trouble they go back, and the shop... Glod has mysteriously disappeared and gone back to whatever dimension it came from. Yes, what is it? You're on the wrong side of the road... It's over here. Glod glared back at the blank wall and then turned and stomped across the road. It was a mistake anyone could have made. Yep. It doesn't invalidate anything I said. Glod rattled the door and to his surprise found it was unlocked. He's gone two in the morning. What kind of music shop is open at two in the morning? Glod struck a match. The dusty graveyard of old instruments loomed around them. It looked as though a number of prehistoric animals had been caught in a flash flood and then fossilised. "'What's that one that looks like a serpent?' whispered Cliff. "'It's called a serpent.' Glod was uneasy. He'd spent most of his life as a musician. He hated the sight of dead instruments, and these were dead. 
They didn't belong to anyone. No one played them. They were like bodies without life, people without souls. Something they had contained had gone. Every one of them represented a musician down on his luck. There was a pool of light in a grove of bassoons. The old lady was deeply asleep in a rocking chair with a tangle of knitting on her lap and a shawl around her shoulders. Claude? Claude jumped. Yes, what? Why are we here? We know the place exists now. Grab some ceiling, hooligans! Glod blinked at the crossbow bolt pricking the end of his nose and raised his hands. The old lady had gone from a sleep to firing stance without apparently passing through any intermediate stage. This is the best I can do, he said. Uh, the door wasn't locked, you see, and... So you thought you could rob a poor defenceless old lady? Not at all, not at all. In fact, we... I belongs to the neighbourhood witch scheme, I do. One word from me and you'll be hopping around looking for some princess with an amphibian fixation. I think this has gone far enough, said Cliff. He reached down and his huge hand closed over the bow. He squeezed. Bits of wood oozed between his fingers. We're quite harmless, he said. We've come about that instrument you sold our friend last week. Are you the watch? Glod bowed. No, ma'am. We're musicians. That's supposed to make me feel better, is it? What instrument are you talking about? A kind of guitar. The old woman put her head on one side. Her eyes narrowed. I won't take it back, you know, she said. It was sold fair and square. Good working condition, too. We just want to know where you got it from. Never got it from nowhere said the old lady. It's always been here. Don't blow that. Glod nearly dropped the flute he'd nervously picked up from the debris. Oh, we'll be knee-deep in rats, said the old lady. She turned back to Cliff. It's always been here, she repeated. It's got a one chalked on it, said Glod. It's always been here, said the woman, ever since I had the shop. Who brought it in? How should I know? I never asks their name. People don't like that, they just get the number. Glod looked at the flute. There was a yellowing tag attached to it, on which the number 431 had been scrawled. He stared along the shelves behind the makeshift counter. There was a pink conch shell. That had a number on it too. He moistened his lips and reached out. If you blow that, you just better have a sacrificial virgin and a big cauldron of breadfruit and turtle meat standing by, said the old lady. There was a trumpet next to it. It looked amazingly untarnished. And this one, he said, it'll make the world end and the sky fall on me if I give it a tootle, will it? Interesting you should say that, said the old lady. Glod lowered his hand and then something else caught his eye. Good grief, he said. Is that still here? I'd forgotten about that. What is it? said Cliff, and then looked where Glod was pointing. That... We've got some money. Why not? Yeah, it might help. But you know what Buddy said? We'd never be able to find... It's a big city, and if you can't find it in Ankh-Morpork, you can't find it anywhere. Glod picked up half a drumstick and looked thoughtfully at a gong half buried in a pile of music stands. I shouldn't, said the old lady. Not if you don't want 777 skeletal warriors springing out of the earth. Glod pointed. We'll take this. Two dollars. Hey, why should we pay anything? It's not as though it's yours. Pay up, said Cliff with a sigh. Don't negotiate. Glod handed over the money with bad grace, snatched the bag the old lady gave him, and strutted out of the shop. Fascinating stock you have here, said Cliff, staring at the gong. The old lady shrugged. My friend's a bit annoyed because he thought you one of those mysterious shops you hear about in folk tales, Cliff went on. You know, here today, gone tomorrow. He was looking for you on the other side of the road. <laughs> Sounds daft to me, said the old lady, in a voice to discourage any further unseemly levity. Cliff glanced at the gong again, shrugged and followed Glod. The woman waited until their footsteps had died away in the fog. And then she opened the door and peered up and down the street. Apparently satisfied by its abundance of emptiness, she went back to her counter and reached for a curious lever underneath. Her eyes glowed green for a moment. Oh, 
forget my own head next, she said and pulled. There was a grinding of hidden machinery. The shop vanished. A moment later, it reappeared on the other side of the road. Buddy lay looking at the ceiling. How did food taste? It was hard to remember. He'd eaten meals over the last few days. He must have done, but he couldn't remember the taste. He couldn't remember much of anything except the playing. Glod and the rest of them sounded as if they were talking through a thick gauze. Ashfelt had wandered off somewhere. He swung himself off the hard bed and padded over to the window. The shades of Ark Morpork were just visible in the grey, cheap-rate light before dawn. A breeze blew in through the open window. When he turned around, there was a young woman standing in the middle of the floor. She put her fingers to her lips. "'Don't go shouting to the little troll,' she said. "'He's downstairs having some supper. Anyway, he wouldn't be able to see me.' "'Are you my muse?' Susan frowned. "'I think I know what you mean,' she said. "'I've seen pictures.' There were eight of them, led by, um, Cantaloupe. They're supposed to protect people. The Ephebians believe they inspire musicians and artists, but, of course, they don't exist. She paused and made a conscientious correction. At least I've never met them. My name's Susan. I'm here because... Her voice trailed away. Cantaloupe, said Buddy. I'm pretty sure it wasn't Cantaloupe. Whatever. How did you get in here? I'm... look, uh, sit down, right. Well, you know how some things, like the muses, as you said, um, people think that some things uh, are, are represented by people. A look of temporary understanding informed Buddy's perplexed features. Like the Hogfather representing the spirit of the Midwinter Festival, he said. Right, well, uh, I'm sort of in that business, said Susan. It doesn't exactly matter what I do. You mean you're not human? Oh, yes, but, but I'm doing a job. I suppose thinking of me as a muse is probably as good as anything, and, and I'm here to warn you. A muse for music with rocks in. Not really, but listen, hey, are you all right? Don't know. You look all washed out. Listen, um, the music is dangerous. Buddy shrugged. Oh, you mean the Guild of Musicians? Mr. Dibbler says not to worry about that. We're leaving the city for... Susan stamped forward and picked up the guitar. I mean this. The strings moved and whined under her hand. Don't touch that. It's taken you over, said Susan, throwing it onto the bed. Buddy grabbed it and played a chord. I know what you're going to say, he said. Everyone says it. The other two think it's evil. But it's not. It might not be evil, but it's not right. Not here, not now. Yes, but I can handle it. You can't handle it. It handles you. Anyway, who are you to tell me all this? I don't have to take lessons from a, from a tooth fairy. Listen, it'll kill you. I'm sure of it. So I'm supposed to stop playing then? Susan hesitated. Well, not exactly, because then... Well, I don't have to listen to mysterious occult women. You probably don't even exist. So you can just fly back to your magic castle, OK? Susan was temporarily speechless. She was reconciled to the irredeemable dumbness of most of mankind, particularly the section of it that stood upright and shaved in the mornings. But she was also affronted. No one had ever talked to death like this, at least not for long. All right, she said, reaching out and touching his arm. But you'll see me again. And you won't like it much, because, let me tell you, I happen to be... Her expression changed. She felt the sensation of falling backwards while standing still. The room drifted past her and away into darkness, pinwheeling around Buddy's horrified face. The darkness exploded, and there was light. Dribbly candlelight. Buddy waved his hand through the empty space where Susan had been. Are you still here? Where did you go? Who are you? Cliff looked around. Thought I heard something, he muttered. Here, you do know, don't you, that some of those instruments weren't just ordinary? I know, said Glod. I wish I'd had a go on that rat pipe. I'm hungry again. I mean, they were mythologic. Yes. So, how come they end up in a second-hand music shop? 
Ain't you ever hocked your stones? Oh, sure, said Cliff. Everyone does some time or other. You know that. Sometimes it's all you got if you want to see another meal. Well, there you are, then. You said it. It's something every working musician's going to do sooner or later. Yeah, but the thing that Buddy... I mean, it's got the number one on it. Yes. Glod peered up at a street sign. Cunning artificers, he said. Here we are. Look. Half the workshops are still open, even at this time of night. He shifted the sack. Something cracked inside it. You knock that side, I'll knock this. Yeah, all right. But I mean, number one. Even the conch shell was number 52. Who used to own the guitar? Don't know, said Glod, knocking on the first door. But I hope they never come back for it. And that, said Ridcully, is the right of Ashkenty. Quite easily done. You have to use a fresh egg, though. Susan blinked. There was a circle drawn on the floor. Strange, unearthly shapes surrounded it, although when she adjusted her mindset, she realised that these were perfectly ordinary students. Who are you? she said. What's this place? Let me go this instant. She strode across the circle and rebounded from an invisible wall. The students were staring at her in the manner of those who have heard of the species female, but have never expected to get this close to one. I demand that you let me go, she glared at Ridcully. Aren't you the wizard I saw last night? Um, that's right, said Ridcully, and this is the right of Ashkenty. It calls death into the circle, and he, or as it may be in this case she, can't leave until we say so. There's a lot of stuff in this book here, spelled with funny long S's, and it goes on about abjuring and conjuration, but it's all show, really. Once you're in, you're in. <laughs> I must say, your, your predecessor, a <laughs> uh, bit of a pun there, was a lot more gracious about it. Susan glared. The circle played tricks with her ideas of space. It seemed most unfair. Why have you summoned me, then? she said. That's better. That's more according to the uh, script, said Ridcully. We are allowed to ask you questions, you see, and you have to answer them, truthfully. Well? Would you like to sit down? Uh, a glass of something? No. Uh, just as you like. Mm. This new music, tell us about it. You summoned death to ask that. I'm not sure who we've summoned, said Ridcully. Is it really alive? I think so. Does it live anywhere? It seems to have lived in one instrument, but I think it's moving around now. Can I go? No. Uh, can it? Be killed. I don't know. Should it be here? What? Should it be here? Ridcully repeated patiently. Is it something that's supposed to be happening? Susan suddenly felt important. Wizards were rumoured to be wise. In fact, that's where the word came from. From the old ways ours. Literally, one who, at bottom, is very smart. But they were asking her things. They were listening to her. Pride sparkled in her eyes. I don't think so. It's turned up here by some kind of accident. This isn't the right world for it. Ridcully looked smug. That's what I thought. This isn't right, I said. It's making people try and be things that they aren't. How can we stop it? I don't think you can. It's not susceptible to magic. Right. Music's not. Any music but something must be able to make it stop. Show her your box, Ponder. Eh, uh, yes, um, here. He lifted the lid. Music, slightly tinny but still recognisable, drifted out into the room. Sounds like a spider trapped in a matchbox, doesn't it? said Ridcully. You can't reproduce music like that on a piece of wire in a box, said Susan. It's against nature. Ponder looked relieved. That, that's what I said, he said. But it, but it does it anyway. It wants to. Susan stared at the box. She began to smile. There was no humour in it. It's unsettling people, said Ridcully. And, and look at this. He pulled a roll of paper out of his robe and unfolded it. Caught some lad trying to paste this onto our gates, blooming cheek. So I took it off him and I told him to hop it, which was... 
Rid Cully looked smugly at his fingertips. Quite appropriate, as it turned out. It's going on about some festival of music with rocks in. It'll all end with monsters from another dimension breaking through. You can rely on that. <laughs> That's the sort of thing that happens a lot in these parts. Excuse me, said Big Mad Adrian, his voice cargoed with suspicion. I don't want to cause any trouble, right? But is this death or not? I've seen pictures and they didn't look like her. We did the right stuff, said Ridcully, and, and this is what we got. Yes, but uh, my father's a, a herring fisherman, and he doesn't just find herring in his herring nets, said Skaz. End of CD 6